everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're starting a new series today called Jesus Underestimated. Most people don't reject Jesus altogether. Instead, they underestimate who he is, what he did, and what's possible in a life with him. This series looks at what happens when Jesus is back in the place he deserves in our lives. Today, we're considering Jesus-shaped prayers. In his book on prayer, Tim Keller points out how common prayer is to the human experience. He writes, even deliberately non-religious people pray at times. Studies have shown that in secularized countries, prayer continues to be practiced not only by those who have no religious preference, but even by many of those who don't believe in God. One 2004 studies found that nearly 30% of atheists admitted they prayed sometimes. Another found that 17% pray regularly. Efforts to find cultures, even very remote and isolated ones, without some form of religion and prayer have failed. I think that should tell us something. If there's no God, why do we seem to be hardwired to talk to one? Even when we deny the existence of God, what is it about us that we don't even seem to be able to consistently practice our own unbelief? I think that the persistence of prayer is evidence that we've been created in the image of God. But if everyone prays, what is there that's distinctive about Christian prayer? To put it a different way, if you're a Christian, is there anything that marks your prayers as different from an atheist's? Has Jesus actually shaped how you pray? Do you pray for the things that Jesus prays for? Or are you praying pagan prayers in Jesus' name? Today's passage gives us a model, a pattern of a Jesus-shaped prayer. It gives you a pattern for how you can pray for your children, your grandchildren, and the people around you at church. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll start at Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now this is the word of God. 
Now, the first thing to pray for a person is a gospel assessment. You run through the qualities of faith, hope, and love, and you either give thanks or you pray for God to intervene. Begin your prayers with a gospel assessment. In verses 1 and 2, you have the opening of Paul's letter. Paul's probably dictating the letter to Timothy, and it's being sent to the church at Colossae, a town in what is today southwestern Turkey. Paul begins his prayer in verse 3 by thanking God. And then in verse 4 and 5, he mentions faith, love, and hope. Whenever you see Paul using those words together, it's never accidental. They're like gospel shorthand for him, and they help him to assess whether a person has rightly responded to Jesus. They can also help you when you pray. Hear how he starts in verses 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. When you pray for someone, it's worth considering who they trust. Is their faith really in Jesus or in someone or something else? When you've seen how easy it is for people to dismiss Jesus and how hard it is for people to believe, we should give thanks when someone expresses faith in Christ. Unfortunately, we often stop there. We take people's words at face value, but the reality is that faith is easy to claim, but harder to confirm. That's why he moves from faith to love. Hear the rest of verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. According to verse 8, Epaphras, one of the Colossian leaders, had visited Paul and made a report. As he did, Paul was listening for evidence of the believer's love for one another. The idea is true faith will give someone a love for other believers. And it's practical. It's not like they're daydreaming about each other and that, that kind of sense of love. It's a love that is expressing commitment. They're committed to one another. According to the Bible, if someone claims to be a Christian, but never gets close to other believers, never serves them, never supports them, then you need to put an asterisk next to their profession of faith. Hear how it's put in 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Your loving commitment to other believers is evidence that your faith is real. And it's not just talking about whether or not you have a Christian friend that you like. John says, because we love the brothers. Paul says, it's a love that you have for all the saints. And you express that by serving. You express that by making time for fellowship. You express that by taking steps like church membership. When you pray for someone who says they're a believer, but doesn't show any loving commitment to the church, that's something to bring before the Lord. They may not be a believer at all, or maybe they are, but it's, it's at least a sign that there are serious problems. Now, Paul's gospel check starts with faith, moves to love, and then ends with hope. He looks for the person's motivation. In verse 5, he says this, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Sometimes people can do all the Christian things for all the wrong reasons. Some people want acceptance. Other people want attention. 
Some people want to prove that they're good people. But none of those are gospel motivations. Is it really the hope of what Jesus has promised that motivates how they act? Or is it guilt or fear or pride? This is especially important when you're praying for your kids. So often, parents mistake good behavior as evidence of faith and Christian character. When in fact, the child may actually just be performing for the parent's approval or fear of getting in trouble. We want to look for evidence of gospel hope. We want to see evidence that they're motivated by gratefulness for all that Jesus has promised them. Often, we pray for people's health and their tests and their jobs. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers. But there's nothing particularly Christian about them either. Even atheists pray for those things when they feel desperate enough. Learn to pray a gospel assessment over yourself and the people in your life. When you see faith, love, and hope, give thanks to God. That doesn't just happen without his supernatural working. When you don't see those qualities, pray for God to work. So first we pray a gospel assessment. Then we pray for knowledge in action. We can't move forward in a relationship with God without growing in our understanding of who he is and what his will for our lives is. And that understanding has to affect how we live. Pray for knowledge in action. Now, by the time you get down to verse 8, Paul's finished his gospel assessment. He's checked off faith, love, and hope. And the Colossians have shown evidence of all three. Paul can't help but be excited. And so he says he's always thanking God for them. But you might have figured that his work was done as far as they were concerned. Surely he'd go on to pray for some other church instead now. We have a tendency to do that. We just pray about the problems. But when Paul saw faith, love, and hope, it motivated his, his prayers even more. So in verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He asks God to fill them with knowledge, with wisdom, and with understanding. In verse 10, he talks again about increasing in the knowledge of God. And he prays like that because he knows people can't grow by just guessing at God's will. A Christian needs to start over and evaluate all their assumptions and instincts about life and the world around us. That only happens as we develop a lifetime habit of reading and reflecting on God's word. Otherwise, we're like a child who comes home from grade one with their first report card. Because there's a check mark beside progressing well in all of the subjects, they decide they don't need any more school. They're ready to take on the world, except they're not. They may be heading in the right direction, but without more knowledge, they're, they're always going to be handicapped in what they can do and accomplish. And it's the same with you and me in our relationship with God. We can't grow without growing in our understanding of the Bible. And if we're not growing, then we're dying. If we're not moving forward, then we're moving backward. The problem is the people who like to read can read for the sake of reading. People who like to study the Bible can study for the sake of studying. If we're not actually trying to put into practice what we learn, our heads get big and our hearts stay small. That's why after praying for the Colossians' growth in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, 
he adds in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. God's word is a seed that God sows in hope of a harvest. The Bible is sown in our hearts that it might bear fruit. But if that's the goal, we need to irrigate and fertilize the soil of our hearts whenever we dig into the word of God. Otherwise, we end up deflecting, ignoring, and resisting what God's trying to tell us. And so we combine prayer with God's word. We ask for his help, and we pray for him to deal with our stubbornness. We ask him to open our eyes to what we need to see. Pray this for yourself. Pray this for other believers around you. Pray this for your pastor. Pray that we'll grow in our knowledge of God's word and pray that that knowledge would bear fruit and change lives that would glorify God. So we start by praying a gospel assessment. Then we pray for knowledge and action. Finally, we pray for patient gratitude. What we have received through faith in Jesus is too great to not be grateful. The hope that we have in what's to come is too big for it not to affect how we face life's difficulties now. So we pray for patient gratitude. Now in verse 11, it sounds at first as if Paul is praying for some huge event where there's a fierce spiritual battle or threatening challenge. He prays for them to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. With the words strength, power, glory, and might, you're ready for something big. What possible reason could Paul have for marshalling the full arsenal of God's power like this? Well, he tells us. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance and patience with joy. That's the goal of Paul's prayer. That's the assignment of a follower of Jesus. We need endurance for our circumstances and patience for the people. And over all of it, joy. Do you understand why that should be a priority in our prayers? Because what does it say about our convictions about God's forgiveness, his abiding presence, and eternal hope if you lean on the horn when someone's half a second late and pulling away when the light turns green? Atheists are the one who think that this world is the only heaven we get. What does it say about our faith when we act as if we agree with them? The first martyr, Stephen, he was being pelted with rocks and he prayed that God wouldn't hold the people's sin against them. And I'm ready to call down fire from heaven when someone cuts me off in traffic. Paul and Silas sang songs of praise when they were unjustly thrown in prison. And I groan in frustration when my internet connection lags. When that happens, it's a sign I've got my eyes off all Jesus has done for me. And in the process, my joy is robbed and my witness is tarnished. When we endure our circumstances and are patient with people, our words have credibility. That was true of the Romanian pastor, Richard Wormbrandt. During World War II, he preached in bomb shelters and rescued Jews who might otherwise have been carried off to their death. He was imprisoned for his beliefs by the Romanian government in 1948. His body was burned and mutilated as part of the church torture. At one point, he was locked inside a large frozen icebox. The soles of his feet were beaten until the skin fell off. 
He spent three years in solitary confinement in an underground cell with no lights or windows. And despite all of that, he encouraged himself in the Lord by composing and delivering sermon, sermons to himself each night. He used Morse code to encourage other prisoners. And when he was finally released and warned never to preach again, after eight and a half years of imprisonment, he went straight back to the ministry in the underground church. How does someone do that? Part of the answer is the supernatural power that God gives in prayer. And part of the answer is a focus on all that we've been given in Christ. Filled with gratefulness himself, Paul can't help but turn in verses 12 to 14 to reflect on our spiritual riches. In verse 12, he reminds them that God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Spiritually speaking, it's like we've been adopted by Jeff Bezos, but instead of an inheritance of Amazon stock, we have eternal riches and glory. And while our inheritance is in light, verse 13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. I'll bet that one of the sermons Richard Wormbrandt preached from his windowless underground cell was on this verse. How else do you endure the darkness of this world unless God has brought you into the light of his hope? How else do you maintain your joy when the walls are closing in on you unless Jesus has set you free from the suffocating control of sin? The prayer ends with this incredible hope. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The world can't oppress the heart that's been set free. Faith in Jesus transfers us into the kingdom where Christ rules. And he redeemed us. He paid the price through his death to purchase our freedom. In him, we stand forgiven, free, and full of hope. How can you believe that and not be grateful? How can you reflect on that and not feel your heart stirred? A Christian has, too, has received too much to not be grateful. So what's your prayer life like? Do you make time to talk to God? Someone has said, if you can smell food every time you bow your head to pray, you're probably not praying enough. Prayer isn't just about giving thanks for our meals. If you've begun a relationship with God, make time for prayer. If you need some help, why not make a list of five people that you see around you here this morning and pray these three areas for them. Pray a gospel assessment. Pray for their faith, their love, and their hope. Where is their trust? How are they connecting? What's their motivation? If they're on track in those areas, praise the Lord. If they're not, pray for God's help. Pray also for their knowledge and action. Pray that they'll take time each day to read the Bible, to listen to the God who wants to speak to them, and pray that they'll respond to what it says. Pray that the seed of the word of God will bear fruit in their lives. Pray that God will prepare their hearts to receive it. And pray for patient gratitude. Pray that their faith will give them the power to endure the circumstances and be patient with people. Pray that they'll find joy in what God has done for them. And pray that there will be a gratefulness that characterizes their lives because of all that Jesus has given them. While you're at it, 
Pray those prayers for yourself and your children and your grandchildren. Don't just pray pagan prayers. Pray Jesus-shaped prayers and ask God to unleash his power in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that so often we just pray pagan prayers. Prayers that have little difference than the world around us. We ask for your help. We pray that Jesus might shape our prayers. We pray that we might pray about the things that matter. Things that are deep to your heart. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to focus our trust on Jesus Christ. We pray that we would express our faith in love, deepen our commitment to the body, deepen our commitment to other uh, believers in the church. And may the hope of what Jesus has done motivate all that we do. We pray, Father, for your power. We pray for strength to endure our circumstances and be patient with people. You've been so patient with us. Help us to show that same attitude toward others. And Father, we ask that you would cause within us a joy and a gratefulness as we reflect on all that you've done for us. As we focus our hearts and our eyes on all that Jesus sacrificed for us at the cross. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this message has given you a pattern for Jesus-shaped prayers. Learn to pray a gospel assessment. Pray for knowledge and action. And pray for patient gratitude. And see how God uses your prayers and the people around you. Today's talk has stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, leave a comment, share the link, and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.